Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Bob Zuckus, the founder and CEO of the Digital Directors Network. He is a leading advocate in systemic risk and digital and cybersecurity governance. Bob also serves as a senior fellow in the ESG Center at the Conference Board, and he's an adjunct professor at the USC Marshall School of Business, where he teaches corporate governance, strategic management, and global business issues. Bob is a retired PwC senior advisory partner where he led PwC's IT strategy, operations, and data management practices. He's advised the Fortune 1000 on a wide range of strategic, operational, and technology-related issues. As a member of PwC's global and APAC leadership teams, he worked and lived on four continents across 20 countries. In this podcast, we talk about the origin and mission of the Digital Directors Network and his book, Digital and Cybersecurity Governance Around the World. We address all things cybersecurity, including its impact and evolution for boards of directors. This episode was originally recorded on November 28, 2022. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Bob, it is so good to meet you, and it's great to have you in the Boardroom Governance podcast we can talk about cybersecurity and many things, uh, corporate governance. So thank you very much for taking the time. Evan, uh, yeah, great to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So I, I typically start off with the uh, background and, and origin story of my guest. So maybe why don't you tell us where you're born, where you grew up, and we'll take it all the way from there to your current roles. Uh, body by cheesesteak. I was born in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh, grew up, uh, you know, kind of a middle-class uh, existence in the suburbs of, of uh, outside of Philadelphia. Uh, but uh, as I started uh, my professional career, we uh, went overseas early. I was one of the first foreign professionals working in mainland China in 1985, 86. Uh, we lived and worked all over the world from Hong Kong to London to a decade in Tokyo to uh, two years in the Middle East in my professional career with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and now based out of Los Angeles and still spend uh, quite a bit of time in Chicago uh, as well. Okay. And so tell us a little bit about your role at, at Pricewaterhouse. A lot of different roles. I was really on that that leading edge of globalization as companies started to expand around the world and as developing markets started to come online. Uh, my last role with the firm was uh, running our IT strategy and operations practice. I ran our West Coast uh, management consulting practice, including our cybersecurity practice, but uh, did some fantastic projects uh, across a lot of different verticals from um, building the first software system in mainland China that uh, actually determined and calculated payroll uh, and got that approved with the uh, the government authorities to submit payroll uh, electronically uh, in the early 80s to working on the largest divestiture uh, at the time uh, in Asia Pacific across 13 different countries. Uh, can't name the client, but um, yeah, had the a lot of different functional areas, a lot of different experiences. My clients were CIOs, CISOs, CEOs um, across a lot of different industries. Uh, so it was a really fascinating uh, 
time and uh, you know to be a professional as the world was was growing up over the last 35 years you know uh, it, it that makes me ask you the question right now i know we we typically delve into these issues and the hot topics but with what's happening today in uh, with china and the us and and sort of this anti globalization uh world where we're dividing uh some of the supply chains what is your thought of having spent a whole career in globalization and now you see where things are going? Any, any quick take on this? Yeah, it's, if you kind of break it down into its component parts, you know, so much of what was happening early was market expansion. Right? Let's, let's enter these developing emerging economies and, and see if we can make a business in that local jurisdiction. Uh, it was interesting in China. We, we were, my wife and I were talking about this uh, over the weekend with the uh, – uh, as quickly as in the last 35 years where China has come from. When I was there, 85, 86, there was, there was one dumpy little hotel in Beijing that we'd stayed at and we'd go up there for months on end. And th there was really nothing uh, there. And some of the early foreign multinationals that came into China, IBM, uh, others that were trying to figure out that marketplace, it was always an open secret that your, your IP was at risk. But that was the trade-off that country companies made with their access to the local marketplace. And, uh, you know, now it's an open secret that, uh, you know, uh, China is very liberal with, with their uh, approach and views towards uh, your IP uh, and whether it's yours or theirs. Uh, and uh, versus, you know, the, the opportunity for just arbitrage, you know, a lot of globalization has been driven upon labor arbitrage and finding lower, lower cost uh, points around the world and now i think both of those have to be have to be rethought and rebalanced um mm -hmm. uh, i'm not sure what what the answer is but i think it is an answer of 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 rebalancing uh that approach to uh to these markets around the world yeah no certainly it's it's a deep topic and and sort of a an important moment in time and history but tell us after pwc where do you go and and, and what kind of work were you doing yeah, I retired in 2012 and I, I didn't want to uh, put myself out to pasture, a little too restless for that. But I wanted to do some more entrepreneurial things. I actually had a very entrepreneurial career under the, the constructs of PwC. I was building practices and markets around the world. So, so I always kind of gravitated towards that. So I, I, I led an early stage venture capital backed SaaS company, uh, was brought in to turn that around. Um, adjunct professor at the USC Marshall School of Business. I uh, enjoy teaching. I teach strategic management, global business issues, uh, corporate governance, and a structured problem solving class. Um, and then five years ago, five and a half years ago, organized an effort to really transform the corporate board uh, around digital and cybersecurity risk oversight. And that's pretty much been my full-time pursuit uh, since then. But thought leadership, advocacy, uh, trying to drive business forward uh, from the, the the perch of the corporate boardroom uh, is really where I've I, I finally landed. Yeah. And, and this is why this is a great conversation because uh, this is all about uh, boardroom governance. So tell us a little bit more about the digital directors network and and kind of what's the origin and mission of the organization? Yeah, the, the origin came from an insight that it was only 20 years ago when it was a novel concept to have financial expertise in America's corporate boards. And it took 
the Sarbanes-Oxley to basically force that to happen. So I'd come back from a decade in Tokyo uh, in 2002 when Sarbanes-Oxley was rolling out. And, you know, think about what that was about. That was, you know, the SEC mm -hmm. having to step in to uh, really address an existential threat to the capital markets because if capital markets couldn't rely upon uh, the financial scorecards, the financial reports, the capital markets would have collapsed. So they had to be, bring a sledgehammer to the the industry that I was a part of, that I was a partner in the big four, the accounting industry to transform and, and build, rebuild uh, very quickly confidence in, in the uh, uh, financial reporting system. But but I started to connect the dots backwards as I was retiring from the firm. My clients were CIOs, CISOs. I was talking to a lot of our clients' corporate boards and um, started to, to realize that we had this enormous competency and skill gap uh, in the boardroom on, on these issues, not just cybersecurity, that's certainly the burning platform, but uh, data sciences, information architecture, uh, emerging technologies, how these tools create value for, for humanity and for businesses and, and um, stayed with that. And I think it was a labor of frustration that I wasn't seeing the governance community or, or others really uh, address the issue. Everybody kept talking about it, but nobody was really trying to solve it. And so it was a labor of frustration five years ago where I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I seem to get this. Nobody seems to understand what I'm talking about. Let me let me see if I can bring some solutions to the to the table uh, and to the boardroom around these issues. And we've since recruited over a thousand leading CIOs, CISOs and corporate directors uh, to that mission and to that journey. And so we're having an impact, you know, one board, uh, one leader, uh, one corporate director at a time. Mm. So for those directors that are listening or, or people who want to join boards, like where should they go to and what should they know about the organization? Yeah, well, it's digitaldirectors.network is the website. And what, what we are is a uh, it's, it's one part uh, a self-learning and education platform. We're teaching people how to actually solve these problems. We've built frameworks that really look at the issue of systemic risk in different ways and we're enabling both sides of the boardroom table uh, to deal with these issues. I, I like to say yeah, we're bringing tech and cyber leadership to the boardroom and we're also bringing uh, the tech and cyber agenda to corporate directors. Uh, so we need to solve this problem on both sides of the table and make, make a market on these issues. So we're advocacy, we're education, we're uh, advisory to help uh, corporate boards and corporate directors and technology leaders understand these issues and, and, and govern uh, the companies, uh, you know, that that shape the world around us much more effectively uh, around these technologies. You know, our, our tagline is kind of digital success starts in the boardroom. The other part of that tagline is so does digital and cybersecurity failure. Uh, so, you know, we've got to address this uh, at that level to, to really make this uh, a sustainable uh, digital future for ourselves. So about uh, maybe seven years ago, I think it was 2015 or so, you know, I was at Stanford as the executive director of the Rock Center, and we started a program, cybersecurity for uh, directors. Seeing that this was such a big issue, this was cybersecurity at some point was the number one topic by far in corporate governance. And, and there was a big recognition that cybersecurity was a gap in knowledge in the boardroom. And, and certainly, uh, I think this is continuing to be the case. But Maybe why don't we step back a little bit and, and, and tell us a little bit the scope of what the industry and threats and, and number of hacks and value this is destroying, should we say, in the market? And how should, what is your framework, your initial framework for directors to understand how big 
cybersecurity is an issue for corporate boards. Yeah, and it starts with how much value is are these technologies delivering uh, to to us uh, in, in terms of how we create and shape the world. If you look at data points from the World Economic Forum to IDC, uh, you know their estimates are that sixty percent of global GDP, uh, directly or indirectly, is derived through digital systems. And you know, you know, if you look at digital business systems um, in terms of how we measure economic output uh, around the world, it starts with the the core ICT inf- industry, the information communications tech industry. That's a pretty hard measure, right? We know what those firms are producing, and then you have the digital natives that build upon those technologies, the Amazons of the world, the Googles of the world, and then you have all the non-digitally natives that take these technologies and they shape their the value proposition that they present to their marketplace. So uh, maybe that's an e-commerce value proposition. Maybe that's employee productivity. Maybe it's customer convenience, customer choice, product quality. There's a lot of different value drivers that are dependent upon these digital systems. And we're starting to figure out how to measure and align economic, traditional economic measures with the digital system. But it's material. It's substantial. Uh, northwards is 60% by, by some of these measures. And so we don't have a choice but to govern and understand these issues better at the board level. And, and it's not just cybersecurity. It's not just the downside. It's how these technologies and the concept of digitally savviness drives value uh, for business and for humanity. And, and if we want to have a digital future, if we want to shape and secure that digital future, we've got to solve this at the leadership level. Yeah. And this year, you published a book called Digital and Cybersecurity Governance Around the World. Let's talk about uh, this book. What made you write this book? And, and basically, you look around the world on some of these issues. Yeah, it actually didn't start out as a book. I didn't think it was going to be a book. When when Mark Gergen, who's a professor at uh, uh, IE uh, in Madrid, uh, who I know well, um, uh, corporate governance leader uh, in academia, asked me to, to write a paper on these issues, I asked him how many words he wanted, and he said, how about 80 pages? So it turned, it turned into a book. And they made it a book, let's put it that way. Uh, and it was really a, a, a seminal piece to uh, to identify what's happening at the board level around the world. Do we have a story? Do we Can we identify leading practices or even pieces of, of, of thinking or, or practice or policy that we could, uh, you know, then interpret as a leading practice uh, to, to, you know, Build a build a baseline uh, that we can then move forward from, and that's what we did. So it's a seminal piece. And if you if you research this issue around the world, uh, nowhere uh, around the world is this issue really well developed and well applied. We do have some bits and pieces that have actually been around for a while. There are two very nice ISO frameworks uh, at the governance level, the corporate governance level that deal with cybersecurity, as well as digital transformation. Uh, There are leading practices in companies um, uh, or in countries like uh, uh, Nigeria uh, and in Malaysia. Uh, where they're doing some differential things and focus things around these issues at the governance level. So we kind of cobbled all that together to to tell a story of of here's how we can move this issue forward uh, around the world. And I, th- I think we're going to see the U.S. Uh, lead on that issue again with what some of the regs uh, are that have been proposed in the United States, uh, much like Sarbanes-Oxley uh, transformed the world around corporate governance. Uh, but I think we're on the cusp of uh, some major transformative issues uh, or initiatives on these issues moving forward. All right. Well, let me ask you a few questions about uh, the book and what you wrote. Uh, wh- what's the digital value business case for corporate boards? You, you, you write a full chapter in that, maybe give us a 
a headline there. Yeah, it goes back to the GDP. This is how we're shaping the world. These are the tools, technologies that we're using to create a value proposition for how we want to live as human beings. Uh, and you know, when you our economic outputs are dependent upon uh, these technologies, we don't have a choice uh, but to govern them. And that's that's at the nation state level, and that's actually at the private sector level. It's kind of interesting. You're actually seeing uh, nation states pay attention to this issue at the governance level uh, through necessity and just defending critical infrastructure, I think more so than private enterprises. So government's actually, I think, leading in some regards on governance thoughts, uh, governance approaches to these issues uh, and is, is, a, is ahead of private sector uh, on it right now. Uh, but yeah, this is how we're shaping the world around us. So we don't have a choice but to understand how that value is getting created. Uh, through these information systems and how uh, we should be protecting those information systems. I, I actually go back to, um, uh, I wrote a book 20, in 2013 around social technology. And if you look at large scale information systems, so go back to the printing press, uh, you know, five, 600 years ago, which is a social technology in, in its own right. And in some respects, people say man's greatest invention. Uh, the mass-produced written word, which is more than just the written word. It's the information. It's the scalability uh, of information. If you looked at economies that adopted those technologies before others, they grew their economies at a 4x rate, four times the pace of companies that didn't adopt these information systems uh, to drive their economies forward. So we've been seeing this before. Uh, so we know information systems uh, drive um, economic outputs. And so we have to get better at uh, governing uh, and protecting them. Yeah. And so based on your experience researching this, what are the uh, some of the digital and cyber governance leading practices that you think are important to highlight here? It's usually around three areas. So it's who's on the board. Do we have the skills and competencies at the governance level to understand these issues? How is the board structured uh, around the issues? And then how do we understand risk? Are we paying attention to risk uh, in the right ways? And, you know, across those three uh, domains, <laughs> There isn't one that we're excelling on anywhere. Uh, we're starting to see some leading practices pop up and certainly the issue of getting the skills and capabilities in the board uh, from a regulatory perspective is, is high priority. Um, but uh, we're at ground zero or very close to ground zero on all three of those issues uh, pretty much around the world. Hmm. And, and how do you define a digitally savvy director? That's a, that's a good question. And uh, we define it across eight different competencies. So the framework that we build is called the director framework, actually. So we think, and this is supported by research from MIT as well. It's not just a singular domain. Complex information systems are uh, uh, complex environments in their own rights that are built up with uh, uh, you know, data expertise, information architecture. We, we think it's eight domains. It's data, information architecture, risk communications, emerging technologies, cybersecurity, third-party systemic risk, uh, awareness and understanding, IT operations, and then digital and cybersecurity regulatory uh, awareness. Those are the eight domains that have to exist at the leadership level, at the board level, for corporate boards to understand the complexity of these systems. There's a great piece of research that MIT did a couple of years ago that correlated 
digitally savviness, digitally savvy directors, and they defined it as more than just cybersecurity skills as mm -hmm. well. They weren't as specific as we were, but they said this is uh, you know how these tools create value and how they shape value, and it was it was leaning towards uh, a much broader. Um, definition, but it didn't go into the details like we did. And then what they found out in their research uh, and the impacts of having a board and leadership of, on these issues was it wasn't incremental. It wasn't five, six percent better outputs, better revenue growth, better market cap growth, better profitability. It was 38 mm percent. -hmm. It was 34 percent higher return on assets and market capitalization uh, growth. It was 17 percent higher profitability. So boardroom leadership on these on these issues matter. And they found out that that only happens when you have a critical mass of the, all of these skills and capabilities represented in the boardroom. So boards often think that this is one person can solve this problem or, you know, regulations are going to force cyber expertise on the boards, but it's broader than that. And so we start to see the tipping point when all of those domains uh, of knowledge and experience are represented. And they, they, they only saw it when there was three digitally savvy, cyber savvy directors, because those three have a much greater likelihood of having all eight of those those competencies represented uh, in the boardroom. So so it's it's a much broader domain than I think most corporate directors and leaders give it credit for. Uh, but that breadth and depth needs to be represented at the board level. Yeah, you know, that reminds me a little bit when some people talk about diversity on boards and, and for example, on gender diversity, they say the same thing. You know, if you have one woman, it doesn't really uh, move the needle, but once you see two or three, and three is the magic number, so it turns out in cybersecurity, at least digital expertise, uh, three seems to be uh, the magic number. But here's another debate that uh, maybe you can help us out, which I suppose is not a debate anymore, but where do you place in terms of the committee? Like, do you have a risk committee where cybersecurity is placed in there? Do you have a special separate cyber committee I'm sure you have a position here. What do you recommend in this regard? Well, the prevailing practice for cybersecurity is that most uh, public companies in the United States, and I think companies around the world, uh, just throw it into the audit committee. And, you know, the audit committee, frankly, is the uh, kitchen junk drawer of corporate governance. We don't know where to put it. Let's throw it in that kitchen junk drawer. And we've all got that kitchen junk drawer, right? You got that weird spatula in there. You got the mashed potato masher and all a bunch of stuff that you don't even know what it's to be used for. You can never get that, that drawer open, right? It's just crammed through a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit in a normal drawer. And most boards, that's what they do. They throw it into the audit committee. And we think that's a leading bad practice. Uh, the NACD also doesn't recommend that as well for two simple reasons. Skills misalignment, do you have the skills and capabilities on the boardroom that understand these issues? And does the issue get enough attention? Is Or is it just getting smothered underneath the uh, the financial reporting uh, agenda and issue? And even the SEC's chief accountant is questioning whether uh, cybersecurity should be in the audit committee based upon those those arguments. You don't have the skills. And remember when we when we, 20 years ago, when we forced you to put audit committees in place, thank you, Sarbanes-Oxley, it was about financial reporting. It, it wasn't for cybersecurity. So, but boards don't know what else to do with it. So, so we made a recommendation and we think that, and we see the leading practice um, from companies like GM, from companies like Walmart, from FedEx, uh, Hasbro, uh, is to put a tech and a cyber committee in place. And it, what a committee does is it brings um, knowledge specialization, task efficiency 
to the issue. There was a really nice uh, piece of Harvard uh, research done a couple of years ago about committee structures and what you get with the committee structures. And think about that. You actually have to define a charter. So you have to define a scope uh, of oversight. And so that charter, uh, the people on that committee are held accountable to that charter. The full board uh, can now hold that committee accountable to that charter. That charter and that committee can now hold the management team um, accountable to a much higher standard. So it will mature from a management perspective, these issues in a dramatic way. So put it in a tech and cyber committee. That's the leading practice. Get it out of the cyber committee. That's the leading bad practice. Get it out of the audit committee, you meant? Yeah, I'm sorry. Get it out of the audit committee, yeah. So what can you tell us about maybe quotas for cybersecurity experts on boards and, and maybe new disclosure rules? Yeah, quota is such a dirty word, but um, it's, you know, a lot of a lot of issues in corporate governance don't move forward unless they're forced. And, you know, look at gender diversity until quotas, quote unquote, were put in place for gender diversity. It was talked about, mm -hmm. but it didn't really um, make the substantive moves that it has made over the last, you know, five to 10 years. In, in markets, a lot of markets uh, like Norway, like uh, France, uh, the U.S. is still a laggard. Uh, if you look at gender uh, penetration in corporate boards, uh, public company corporate boards in the United States, we're, we're about 30% um, right now, which uh, of the G7, that puts us in sixth place, only ahead of Japan uh, at 8%. So we're still lagging our G7 counterparts, but we know quotas work. We know quotas force the issue. So uh, you know, a, a fun fact about uh, SEC chair uh, Gary Gensler and what the SEC has now proposed in terms of cyber expertise on uh, U.S. public company corporate boards, uh, that's essentially cut and pasted from Sarbanes-Oxley 20 years ago. And the fun fact about Gensler is he was a senior advisor to Paul Sarbanes 20 years ago. So, you know, everybody moaned and groaned about that 20 years ago. Uh, but he knows it works. He knows when boards are forced to have this skill and capability in the room. It's very lightweight regulation. It's a complier, explain provision. SEC's not forcing issuers to do this. They're still complaining about it and they don't want to do it. Um, but uh, he knows it, it's going to work and it's going to be transformative once we have these skills and capabilities in the boardroom. So it's it's about disclosure. Well, well, yeah, disclose who is your cyber expert, right? And it's not somebody that goes to a Carnegie Mellon two-hour cybersecurity class and says, I'm now a cyber expert. It's applied experience. The SEC wants people that have been in this job, in this role before. I always, I always use this statement. I always say, if I were to sit on a a hospital board that doesn't make me a medical doctor, right? The SEC wants medical doctors. I'd maybe know more about hospital administration and I can talk, you know, surgery, you know, with the doctors, but you don't want me cutting into a body, right? So the SEC wants people that have done this job before. They don't want executives that have, you know, come out of marketing or finance that have taken a class or have even been on a board of a of a cybersecurity firm. That's 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 partial credit. Uh, that's that's better than nothing. Uh, but they want people that have done this job before. How do you see the uh, the differences in practices between U.S. boards and other boards? Any good practice that you see elsewhere that could be imported in the U.S. or are we in the forefront of these issues? Yeah, and that that paper that was you know transformed into a book. That's what we started to see. We started to see uh, specific disclosures around. Here's our corporate directors, and here's the cybersecurity classes that they took, uh, and putting that into disclosure statements for investors. 
that's useful for investors because, oh, your, your directors are getting educated on these issues. Uh, we have a committee uh, in place, and here is the scope of the committee's responsibility uh, and oversight. We started to see more specific disclosures from, I think that was Maybank in Malaysia, and I think it was ShopRite uh, in Nigeria. Uh, but but it, it seems that more willingness to uh, to explore alternative practices uh, outside the U.S. than there are in the U.S. in the governance community. Although having said that, uh, you know we do see some leaders in the United States uh, doing exactly what we identify as the leading practices. Our FedEx is one of our poster children. They've had a tech and a cyber committee on their board for twenty years. Now think about what the FedEx business model is. It's a giant information system, right? You run that kind of logistics operation. It's a giant information system. So they got religion on this early on and they they understood it. Chris Inglis, who's now the uh, U.S. National Cybersecurity Director in the Biden administration, was the chair of that mm-hmm. committee for FedEx. Um, one of the things that that committee tasked its, its directors with was to be advisors to the management team. They want those directors to be in an advisory capability to the management team and bring their understanding and perspectives on new cyber and technology uh, technologies to the management team. So, uh, you know, it gets very specific, the, the, the fragmented leading practices that are or alternative practices. They, I wouldn't, they haven't co- coalesced and coagulated yet into a leading body of practices, which is what we wanted the, the paper and the book to do. Um, but, but they're fragmented practices. And so if you start to pull together the pebbles, uh, you can start to see a little mosaic uh, emerging from them and it's skills, structure, scope. Uh, that's, that's where uh, the foundation of, of great corporate governance rests on digital and cybersecurity issues. Interesting. What can you share to people or directors about uh, some of the latest state-of-the-art techniques that have been employed by hackers uh, to infiltrate corporate systems. What are some of the cases maybe that you can flag so people can see? I remember, you know, years ago, people lo- love to talk about the Target case and, you know, there were f- very famous, you know, Equifax uh, hacks and others. What are you seeing today? One of the lessons was always that attack was always more advanced than defense, right? They, they were always kind of uh, in the forefront of these issues. Uh, but... Can you share some of the latest uh, cybersecurity hacks? Yeah, I'd say it's attack strategies are more sophisticated than the defensive strategies. Attack tactics can be very simple um, when the strategic approach uh, can overwhelm uh, the defensive approach. And what that means is basically attackers have figured out uh, the, the issue of systemic weakness and systemic risk before we have from a defensive standpoint. So attack strategies are now systemic. They recognize that the system, the complex system is in and of itself the weak point. When the Russians hacked uh, SolarWinds, um, SolarWinds wasn't necessarily the target. What the target was, was the 20,000 companies that would upload the malware that they put into the software uh, upgrade process uh, to to expand the, the, the attack surface for them. Uh, so, so the, the, the attackers are attacking us systemically, but we're not defending ourselves systemically. And their, their tactics can be very simple. The 
most common and most most advantaged tactic is through the human interface, through the the, the person mm-hmm. uh, as a systemic part of the system. And each one of us is a unique part by definition. So that's why we keep getting breached uh, individually. And you know those are very simple tactics, and all you have to do is find one weakness, and you're into the larger system. That's the definition of a systemic threat. So, so, so the tactics aren't that complex, but the strategies are uh, more dimensional than our defensive approaches. Yeah, and you know, where is the collaboration between the state and the corporations? Because there has been a lot of uh, state actors, uh, you know. North Korea or China or Russia. Now, certainly with the conflict, there's been a lot of fear there's going to be a, a counteroffensive in the cybersecurity front and that, you know, private assets, private companies could be the target of this. So where and yeah. how do companies collaborate with uh, the FBI or maybe other um, cybersecurity defenses that are state level? But yeah, go back to my comment that the government is is a little bit ahead of this issue relative to private enterprise, and they have to be for critical infrastructure, right? So if you're if if you're a contractor, if you're providing services to the government, they're starting to hold and regulate you to a to a higher standard. Because the fundamental issue is is how do you how do you deal with risk in a distributed world of risk? How do you how do you how do you govern and manage risk when risk is distributed? Right? It very much is the weakest link. Uh, you know, concept and theory. And so governments, given, you know, what they have to sustain and uh, what a high value target they are and how many private sector companies interact with the the government, they're, they're taking the lead on, on new standards uh, of interaction. But then still those ecosystems that private enterprise companies rely upon are, are equally uh, as vulnerable, uh, potentially, you know, just a different, um, uh, you know, threat, um, a threat uh, uh, vector and or threat base to them relative to, to government targets. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it comes back to that issue of, of how do you govern and manage distributed risk? Yeah. And that's the new world we live in right now. So I, I know you, you're not a lawyer, but uh, th- there are a lot of now legal liabilities and, and fiduciary duties of directors and oversight, um, you know, cooperation with government and also cyber insurance. Uh, have you been able, or what, what would you tell directors on the cybersecurity uh, oversight level? And what are the cases that you are following that have given you some sort of framework around this? Yeah, cyber insurance is a pet peeve of mine because they, uh, the cyber insurance industry, uh, I don't think, has done uh, nearly enough to help their insureds understand uh, risk. Uh, you know, frankly, I think they were fat and happy collecting premiums as this product was growing. Uh, but then as the bills became due, uh, I think they realized they didn't really understand the risks that they had underwritten. And now they're just uh, basically pushing their losses back onto the insureds through uh, restricted coverages and terms and conditions and jacked up premiums. Uh, but I don't think the real levels of risk have been materially impacted by, uh, you know, the risk experts, the insurers, uh, in the way that they otherwise could have been. But, but I think what's happened is, is I think it's forced companies and boards to realize that they're largely self-insured for this risk. They haven't insured their way out of this problem. Far from it. Our estimates are only eight to nine percent of the economic exposure of cyber risk has been accepted or transferred to the risk and risk insurance industry, the cyber risk insurance industry. Companies are on the hook for 90 plus percent of the financial impact of these threats. 
And so for directors, personal liability, it's it's a high bar here in the United States. And, you know, the SolarWinds directors were, were sued in a shareholder derivative lawsuit. That's one we were watching very closely uh, because SolarWinds was doing something really unique uh, prior to the breach. They had they had they had a former CIO who had CISO uh, responsibilities uh, or uh, under cybersecurity understanding uh, on their board. So they had some expertise. But they had their nom and gov committee uh, tasked with cybersecurity risk oversight. The fact that it wasn't in the audit committee was a was a nice indicator for us that could, because that shows that they consciously thought about something other than just throwing it into the audit committee. But but it wasn't in the charter. It seemed kind of sloppy, and it didn't seem like they were really doing the job that effectively. Their disclosures were okay. Uh, actually, but uh, immediately after the breach, uh, guess what they did? They put a tech and a cyber committee in place. Uh, they pulled everything out. They put it in a de- dedicated tech and a cyber committee, and they added two new directors with deep cyber expertise to the boardroom. So, so I think that you know, through their own actions, they were admitting maybe we weren't spending enough time with the right people and doing this job effectively. And you know, so director liability, it goes to. Uh, the directors won that that case, that shareholder derivative law, lawsuit. They were claiming uh, the utter failure of the board to address these issues. And, you know, the court standard under Caremark is is fairly high. And, you know, the, if you read the judgment, the court's, uh, um, the, the justice's write-up of, of the case, uh, it was pretty damning in terms of, yeah, you were pretty incompetent at doing this, but you weren't intentionally uh, incompetent. And so they found uh, they found for the defense, not the plaintiffs in that shareholder derivative of a lawsuit. So the directors dodged that bullet. You know, that incompetence still cost the company an enormous amount of money. <laughs> but it didn't cost the 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 the, uh, the corporate directors anything financially. I'm sure there were some sleepless nights dealing with all the legal nonsense uh, around it. But um, yeah, it's a pretty high bar. But I think as we see more regulations come into play, that intentional dereliction standard from a director liability perspective starts to come down. Uh, so, so so I think directors are going to get more targeted and be held to a more effective standard around these issues. Fortunately for them, it's a very easy solution. Get somebody in the room that understands these issues. Put the cyber expert on on the, on the board that understands these issues. And that's a strong indicator of your uh, intentional uh, execution and responsible execution of uh, of your duties. Yeah. How many... In, in your research, uh, I remember uh, Gerald Grantford at Stanford at some point uh, took a stab at looking at how many boards actually had some cybersecurity expertise, and it was very, 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 very low. And so where do we stand today? Yeah. I mean, you've been doing this work for the last five years. How much uh, progress do you see in terms of new directors coming in, and how do you see it progressing from, from here? It's it's inching up. It's it, I I think the numbers around ten to fourteen odd percent. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the latest numbers that I've seen, and we we do have all the detail on that. We do track it uh, on a regular basis. Um, but but it should be a hundred percent, and w- which it is for financial expertise now. But but it wasn't twenty years ago. It was numbers around that ten to fourteen to twenty percent level. Now it's a hundred. Uh, it needs to be. A uh, hundred, uh, and I think it will be. I don't. Th- I don't think boards are going to want to play games with, uh, you know, uh, Sue or you know, Bill took a two-hour class, uh, and Bill or Sue aren't going to want to sign up to being the putting their name to being down as the cyber expert. 
um, and have to rationalize and justify that in the, in, you know, in the eyes of a growing litigious environment uh, around these issues. So, and I always kind of come back to the point, you know, the average corporate director of the S&P 500 makes $315,000 a year. So for $315,000, any corporate board can materially improve a critical control point in their whole cybersecurity system by putting a cyber expert on the board. For $315,000 to materially improve a critical control in your cybersecurity uh, system only costs you $315,000. And it goes a long way towards reducing your, your, your business risk profile by having this competency at the director. It's a no-brainer. It's a slam dunk. Um, but the, 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 the strange thing is they're not doing it. And, you know, that's the, that's the mystery of, of, of why. And I think there's a lot of reasons behind that, but, uh, um, so it doesn't cost a lot to solve this, this problem. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, my last episode, I had Bill McNabb, the former chairman and CEO of, of Vanguard. And, and one part of the discussion was, uh, cybersecurity expertise and one downside, right, is is rushing to put a cyber expert, but that doesn't know much about governance. So you may have one thing that, okay, he understands governance, but he doesn't understand yep. anything else. And that doesn't add much value and it's a problem. So what are, you know, I suppose it comes from both ends, right? You, you want people to understand all governance and, and hopefully you'll have a subset of people who can do all of it, right? But it's it's still, you're narrowing down the scope of people who can do governance and can do cybersecurity. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, th I think there's two parts of that issue. I think there's a bias against CIOs and CISOs that they don't have business aptitude. And, and a lot of cases that's, that's uh, ill-informed. Um, in some cases it's justified, but just like in some cases it was justified that, you know, not all audit partners or, or finance experts had a, you know, strategic business mindset 20 years ago. Um, so, so, you know, we, we heard that kind of argument back then and, you know, we still hear it now. We, we built a masterclass for digital and cybersecurity leaders to teach them about corporate governance uh, to to get them to understand what this job is about, initially to help them deal with their own boards because over the last three, four, five years they've been in the boardroom more than they've ever been before. And you know, they're all, who are these people? What is governance? Uh, uh, you know, I didn't have a class on this, right? Uh, so so how do I tell my story to to these people? So we built a masterclass and over you know. CISOs from some world famous, you know, American companies and companies around the world have gone through it uh, to to bolster their skills on this issue. I've been really pleased by the by the community, um, their appetite to want to help their boards deal with this issue. Uh, the CIO and the CISO community, they're they're continuous learners. Um, that, that's kind of a strong uh, foundation in, in that functional area because they have to be because things are constantly changing. Right. So so this is just the next threshold that they have to overcome. So they're they're gathering the knowledge, they're applying it. They want to be part of the solution. Uh, and I think many of them are, are much more qualified than they're given credit for on the CIO side and the CISO side. And, uh, you know, they, we have to work to refute that that bias against them as one trick ponies. But, you know, when you're tasked with keeping 60 percent of the business value of the company uh, running, uh, from an economic output perspective, you understand strategy, you understand business, you understand uh, how the company creates value. Uh, they're just not given credit for it. And a lot of times I don't think they've told the story effectively as well. So we're helping them uh, learn and close that, that, that knowledge and that skill gap. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, the other thing that it reminds me is one of the now maybe leading topic in corporate governance is ESG. And and a lot of people are saying you need to have experts in ESG, whatever, however you define that, whether it's environmental, social, uh, and other issues. And it's crowding a little bit, you know, this idea of board composition. And, you know, at some point, as you said, in the 2000s, early 2000s, financial experts, uh, you know, maybe mid to 2010s, you know, cybersecurity experts. And now we talk about ESG experts. I mean, at some point, you got to figure out, okay, uh, how do you create a board that is a matrix of competencies and and certainly i think cybersecurity and digital ex- expertise or savviness you know is is critical and i think nobody can argue against that at this stage yeah the the board ultimately has to reflect the uh, the competencies and the capabilities uh, that the company needs to uh, deliver its value proposition right so every company is delivering a value proposition on the back of these digital information systems so this is a core part uh, of a corporate board uh, competency Profile ESG, we're the, we're the G. Uh, the digital and cyber agenda is the G uh, in ESG, but the ENS has gotten uh, a lot more airtime and a lot more headlines than than our uh, unsexy G part has. You know, but every company has to uh, you know sustain itself and survive and exist in a in an environment that that enables that. So all of these issues uh, are important. Um, I don't think one's more important than the other. Some have much, uh, I think, more negative impacts uh, potentially in the short term uh, than others. Uh, but, uh, you know, we haven't made nearly as much traction on the RG part than the ENS uh, uh, folks have. So so we've got work to do. <laughs> Outside of cybersecurity, are there any other items that you'd like to address for corporate directors or executives who want to join boards that we haven't talked about? It's digital and cyber, remember, right? So it's an upside, two sides of the same coin. It's the upside and the downside. Uh, I, I think if you're uh, if you're a corporate director, um, understand uh, the importance of having these skills at the governance level and recognize that skills, structure, and scope of risk oversight that you have to address to govern these issues effectively. If you're a technology executive, uh, get involved, raise your hand up, uh, start to recognize that your help is needed in the boardroom and get involved in that discussion and, and recognize that this is potentially a, a career option for you as well uh, to join the other side of the boardroom table. So, so get engaged and get involved uh, and help you know solve the problem from the front of the room. Okay. All right. Well, let's move to the rapid fire questions. Uh, what are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Yeah, um, there, there's a book I always go back to. I've read this book uh, a half a dozen times. It's it's a book uh, written by uh, a guy named uh, Peter Beckman. It's called The History of Pie. Uh, wow. And it's not apple pie. It's not pumpkin pie. It's 3.14151912 uh, <laughs> pie. Uh, and and yeah. it's, it's a really fascinating historical read of how ancient societies basically tried to square the circle and understand that that unique mathematical concept of 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 you know the the infinite number of pi and what pi re- represents uh, in in the the world order. Um, very abstract to you know my day job, but uh, it's a fascinating read. Yeah. 
Okay. And any other books on cybersecurity that you recommend? Yeah. For, for corporate directors, I'd actually go a little more foundational and I wouldn't start with cybersecurity. I think they need a more uh, foundational uh, understanding of these tools and these technologies and what they represent. There's a, there's a book called uh, The Nature of Technology by W. Brian Author. Uh, what is technology and how it evolves? Uh, that's a really good foundational reading, I think, for any corporate director on these issues before they get into the the technical nuances of, of how you protect that value. I think they'd be well informed by how these technologies uh, adopt, uh, pervade the world and and why uh, they're here to stay, essentially, and understand some of their their foundational uh, structural issues. Okay, that's good. And, and by the way, all of this will be added in the show notes so people can go to those links uh, of those books. Who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? Yeah, my, my mentors, um, I, I've worked with a lot of really smart people around the world. My, my mentors uh, were, were actually uh, my teams more than, more than uh, my, my mm -hmm. peers uh, or you know, the, the bosses uh, of the firm. I, I've learned more from my, my teams uh, and my clients uh, than I learned from, from anybody uh, in, in my career. And I think their, you know, their perspectives, their views, uh, their ability to stretch my thinking um, um, was a very important, powerful part uh, of my development. And it was the diversity of those skills and experiences. One of the beautiful things about growing up in management consulting and in these firms is you work with a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds with a lot of knowledge about a lot of different issues. And the fact that I did it, you know, on four continents across 20 countries made it even a richer uh, experience. So uh, a shout out and a thank you to all the people that I worked with that worked for me uh, that uh, taught me a lot of very interesting perspectives and uh, things about the world and how it works. Okay. Having lived in all those places makes me think, what is your favorite city and why? Favorite city in the world was Hong Kong, uh, 85, 86. One of my, my favorite 15 minutes of the world uh, was the Star Ferry back and forth uh, from Hong Kong to Kowloon Harbor. And I, I was actually playing basketball for the, the national team uh, in uh, in Hong Kong as well. So wow. we play the the mainland Chinese teams that would come down. And this, you know, this is early 80s. And, you know, China only opened up in 79. Uh, mm -hmm. with Deng Xiaoping after he, you know, the, the lockdown uh, opened up to the Western world. And the first time some of these mainland Chinese uh, athletes were coming into uh, Hong Kong and these guys were seven foot, seven, two, seven, three. And I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six, eight. So I'd have to cover them, but we'd have, you know, 20,000 people out to watch us and they'd uh, uh, just be yelling and cheering. It was, it was, it was a good time. It was a lot of fun, but what a beautiful city back then. Amazing, amazing place. And it's, it's not the same, but uh, it, it was just magical. Yeah, that's really interesting. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? I, I always come back to, uh, it, it's not a quote, it's more of a poem. Uh, Robert Frost, The Road Less Traveled, uh, is something I use pretty regularly. I share that with my students whenever I close a class at USC Marshall. And it was, it was you know, be willing to, you know, step into to the unknown. And I, I, I kind of was lucky enough to do that early on. My wife and I, you know, went to Saudi Arabia kind of on a lark, kind of on a whim, and it, it was my wife who, you know, found a little uh, an advertisement uh, with a little camel on it in the Dallas Morning News, and said, "Hey, there's a job in Saudi Arabia that does what you do for for, you know, your industry, your your firm. Uh, why don't we go to Saudi Arabia?" And we're like, 
okay, sure, why not? So away we went and, uh, uh, you know, step onto that road less traveled and you'll uh, have some interesting discoveries about yourself and, and the world as well. Okay. Now that's, that's really interesting. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? It's not really unusual. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm a workout maniac. I'm, I obsess about uh, working, working out uh, and, uh, you know, really just uh, uh, the enjoyment and the competitiveness of, of being an active sportsman uh, is something that uh, keeps my, uh, my mental faculties intact as well as uh, what's left of my, my physical capacity. <laughs> Former athlete. So, do you still play basketball? Yeah, I, uh, up until about two years ago, I was pre-pandemic. Yeah, I was playing competitive uh, masters. Uh, there's a masters Olympics tournament uh, oh, that wow. I was playing in for masters athletes. It's it's funny. I uh, I still play with some of the guys I played with in Chicago from 30, 35 years ago, and you know we all have the same games, but it's just slow motion now. So. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I love to hear that. Finally, which living person do you most admire? Yeah, it's a lot. That's a tough question, and you know, I thought about that, but it's there's a lot going on in the world right now, and I, I, I there's not a lot to admire in some respects. But but I think with uh, I'm second generation Lithuanian, um, uh, so Eastern European. So I think with Volodymyr uh, Zelensky's going through and what he's doing with the Ukrainian people, uh, probably tops tops my list um, in in what's happening uh, around the world, and it's 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 a unique uh, thing to to be living through. Uh, I was I was hopeful we we moved beyond some of these issues, but uh, you know they're they're still out there. Uh, so so yeah, uh, a lot of respect for what's going on over there. Okay, Bob, thank you so much for your time for uh, talking to me about cybersecurity, but digital expertise and and governance generally. I think this is a huge topic. It's very important for directors to understand this, and uh, I recommend everyone to go to your website. And you know where can they find you if they wanna if they wanna find you. Yeah, uh, my address is Bob at digitaldirectors.network. And the website again was www.digitaldirectors.network. Um, and I'm, I answer all my own emails. I'm very responsive. So look forward to hearing from everybody. All right. Well, thank you very much. And hopefully we'll get to meet soon if you come up to the Bay Area or if I go down to the LA region, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to meet soon. Yeah, thanks, Evan. And thanks everyone for listening. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com. And please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.